The following reading is taken from Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward's Cases of Conscience, 1755. How may we distinguish the suggestions of Satan from the corruptions of our own hearts? This question is taken into consideration in consequence of a letter recently received in which it was put almost word for word. And certainly it is of great importance that a question of this nature should be seriously and solidly answered in order to prevent some very uncomfortable or very delusive mistakes which different persons are apt to run into. For there are some who awfully deceive themselves by casting off from themselves all their sinfulness and charging it upon the devil, while there are others who frequently distress themselves unnecessarily by laying to their own charge all the evil which they feel in themselves, the unrenewed person is most apt to run into the former mistake, while the serious Christian is most ready to indulge the latter. Those who don't know the plague and corruption of their own hearts are certainly in great danger of deluding themselves, while those who see their own sinfulness and corruption are frequently under a temptation to distress themselves. The carnally secure person, when he has been carried into some enormity, which galls his conscience or damages his reputation, is strongly inclined to seek all manner of excuses for himself. And among the many methods which the pride and corruption of his heart take is this one, namely to charge the fault upon Satan in order to discharge himself from it, and ease his mind under the guilt of it. But surely this is a sad way of acting. And we have reason to think that the devil is truly innocent of many of those things which are laid to his charge, but we find his serious soul is of a contrary disposition. Knowing himself to have all manner of sin in him, he is therefore apt to charge himself with almost everything. From this it appears that it is one artifice of the devil to suggest evil thoughts, and then to persuade the gracious person that he is chargeable with them. And if he can prevail upon the poor believer to take those charges home to himself, this produces a most melancholy distress, and it has a tendency to drive him to despair. And I have no doubt that many gracious persons have been brought almost to the very borders of desperation by being inclined to charge themselves with what was not properly their sin, but was only their affliction. The foregoing thoughts make it appear very evident that this question should be attended to with great diligence. And if I can be a means of giving a satisfactory solution to the important query, it may, by the blessing of God, be a happy means of rousing the carnally secure and of comforting the distressed believer. Therefore, in order to introduce a proper answer to this question, it will be necessary to premise two or three things. First, that our own hearts can tempt us to the worst of sins, even without the concurrence of the devil. There is nothing too bad, vile, or abominable for our corrupt hearts to suggest to us. For our Savior tells us that out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, blasphemies, and the like. Matthew 15 verse 19. And the Apostle James confirms this awful truth by telling us that every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed, James 1, 14 and 15. So there is great need to be attentive to and watchful against the first risings of our depraved nature. Number two, that Satan may suggest evil thoughts to us 
even without the concurrence of our own hearts. This is undoubtedly the case with our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though perfectly free from sin, was tempted to the vilest iniquity in the wilderness, as recorded in Matthew 4, verses 3 to 10. And it was likewise with respect to our mother Eve when Satan made his first attack upon her. And I have no doubt that this has been the case with many true believers, as will be made evident in the sequel to this discourse. Number three. Did sometimes both Satan and our own hearts concur to produce the same evil thoughts within us? Sometimes our own corrupt hearts are first in the sin, and then we may be said to tempt the devil to tempt us. Thus it was with the Corinthian converts in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. I fear, lest somehow as a serpent beguiled Eve through his craftiness, so your minds may be led astray from the simplicity that is in Christ. We find that these Corinthians had preferred one gospel minister to another by regarding the oratory of speech and by having itching ears. This, it is evident, was their own fault. And from this we find that Satan grabs a handle to draw them away from the true simplicity of the gospel. At other times, Satan is first in the evil by suggesting wicked thoughts to the mind which are suited to our own nature and corrupt disposition. He takes advantage of our circumstances and tempers, and then our hearts readily fall in with a suggestion, and so we are beguiled and betrayed. In many cases, Satan and corruption so concur together that it is difficult to know which is first, or which has the greatest influence on the sin committed or the corruption indulged. But I apprehend that we may in some measure know when Satan has achieved our only hand in the temptation by the following rules. 1. When the temptation is unnatural or contrary to the general bias or temper of our minds, we may know that every person has a disposition to some one sin more than others, and this is a sin that more easily besets us as it rises from our natural temper. Now observe, when the temptation falls in with this disposition, it is difficult to know whether it arises from Satan or ourselves. But sometimes persons are tempted to what is directly contrary to this general bias. In the former case, our natural inclination, we ought to be very cautious lest Satan take advantage of us, and we are ignorant of it. But in the latter case, an unnatural inclination. It is very evident that the temptation must be chiefly or only from the devil. We have a remarkable proof of this in Peter, who was rather inclined to an overheated zeal for Christ and his cause. And yet, we find him betrayed into the contrary sin, namely the most abject cowardice. We find this expressly ascribed to Satan in Luke 22 verse 31. Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Number two, when the temptation is opposite to the present frame of the mind, then there is reason to think that Satan has a hand in it. The soul of a believer we know is in very different frames in different seasons, sometimes being more carnal, and at other times more spiritual, sometimes more comfortable, and at other times more dejected. 
Now, if a temptation falls in with the present temper of our minds, then it is very likely our own hearts have the chief agency in it. For instance, if, when we are in a comfortable frame, we are tempted to presumption, or if in a dejected frame, we are tempted to despair, Satan may have a great influence even in this case, though it is more indiscernible as we see in the Corinthian church. There, we find that the church was brought into an utter detestation of the sin of the incestuous person. But Satan takes advantage from this to drive them to extremes, to swallow up the excommunicated person with excessive sorrow, which is ascribed to the devil, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, lest Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. On the contrary, it is very apparent that Satan has a chief hand in the temptation that runs counter to our present frame. For instance, if profane thoughts are injected into the mind when we are in a devout frame, or if presumptuous thoughts come in while we are in a disconsolate frame, or despairing thoughts are injected when our minds are in a comfortable and spiritual frame, In any of these cases, it seems evident from the nature of the thing that Satan has a chief influence. Number three, when the temptation itself is irrational, being contrary to whatever we could imagine our minds would suggest to us, here is reason to think that Satan has a chief agency. Suppose a serious Christian is tempted to disbelieve the Bible or to call into question the very being of a god, or is hurried on towards some unnatural crimes. Such circumstances as these are plain intimations that the cause is the temptation of Satan, rather than our own corruptions. Number four. When the temptation is detested in its very first rising or appearance, this is a sign Satan has a chief hand in it. For when our hearts tempt us to anything, the temptation is attended with a secret delight at its first rising, because it is suited to our natures and wills. We cannot help but feel pleasure in the suggestion itself, because it proceeds from ourselves. But when an injected thought is abominable in our sight and detestable to our soul at its first appearance, and it is an affliction and burden rather than a gratification. This is an indication that it comes from Satan. As in the case of her mother Eve, who, though she was at length overcome by the temptation, yet at its first appearance her heart disliked and rejected it. And it is a comfortable reflection to remember that while this detestation remains, It is a sign that nothing in it is to be laid to our charge. Number five, when the temptation is violent. This is another indication of Satan's agency. We are perhaps hurried on with a kind of impetuosity and urged to commit a sin in the utmost haste. The temptation says, you must do this. And the suggestion won't allow us time to think but drives us on, without a choice, into the iniquity. And what can we judge from such an experience as this? 
but that we are under some evil influence from the wicked one. Further, perhaps the suggestion pursues us from day to day. We want to get rid of it. We strive, pray against it, but still it follows us, and it will take no denial. Rather, it forces rather than persuades us into the abomination we are tempted to. This, likewise, is another plain indication of Satan's agency. I would finish these remarks with a particular thought that reaches to all the foregoing headings. And from the nature of the thing, appears to be an evidence of Satan's influence. And that is, the temptations are external or from without. Here I must desire everyone to look distinctly into its own experience to discover the difference between what proceeds from within and what comes from without. You may easily know in what manner your own thoughts usually arise. You may, as it were, feel them coming forth from your own heart. And so by this inward feeling they appear to be from within. But at other times the thoughts seem to be produced from an impression made upon you. They dart into your mind rather than proceed from there. This I must leave to everyone's attentive observation of himself. I hope that by frequent inquiry, you may be able to distinguish one from the other, from your own experience. If you have clear reason to think that the evil thoughts are injected into, and not produced from your mind, then you may safely ascribe them to the agency of Satan. For he does not have direct access to your heart, but can only work on the imagination, and so dart or suggest thoughts to the mind. Having thus endeavored to give as clear and as scriptural an account as I can of this intricate manner, let me conclude with a few advisements and directions. 1. Take heed. And do not charge all against Satan. This is too common a case, especially among those who don't have the fear of God before their eyes. When I hear persons continually casting the fault of their sins upon the devil's temptations and suggestions, I cannot help but suspect that they are awfully ignorant of themselves. They have never known the corruption of their own hearts, nor seen the excellence of Jesus Christ. But... If we are inclined seriously and conscientiously to take the whole fault upon ourselves, this is an error on the right hand. For it is a great sign of a tender conscience to take too much upon ourselves, rather than too little. And doubtless everyone who has truly seen the plague, deceitfulness and corruption of his own heart, will be inclined to suspect himself rather than strive to pacify his conscience by laying the guilt upon Satan, or any other. But you may perhaps say, how will I know when to charge anything upon myself? And how far am I personally guilty of what I find working in me, or injected into my mind? I answer, you needn't be much at a loss on this topic, for I must tell you in real faithfulness that you are to charge every suggestion upon yourselves as your own fault so far as you yourselves are either active in them, consent to them, or feel any pleasure in receiving them. 
Indeed, so far as you don't seriously and heartily oppose them, you bring blame and guilt upon yourselves. Number two, yet, do not charge all upon yourselves. I have to recommend this advice to all those who are perpetually troubled with and perplexed by those workings in their mind which are exceeding grievous and offensive to them. Are you, poor soul, troubled with blasphemous thoughts? Or do you find yourself hurried on into what is contrary to the frame of your mind and the temper of your heart? Remember, for your comfort, that these things are only to be viewed as afflictions, and they will not be imputed to us as sins. You are indeed ready to say, Oh, I am filled with so many evil thoughts, with so many blasphemies against God, with so much questioning about the truth. And surely my heart must be very bad, and my case very desperate. Surely never a poor sinner was ever so vile as I am. Is this the language of your soul? Remember this very complaint is a happy token that these things are not to be laid to your charge, nor will they be imputed to you by the one who knows the secrets of all hearts, the great and gracious God who sees all the ways and workings of the wicked one and knows the workings and strugglings of your heart against his violent and abominable suggestions will have compassion on you. He will consider your frame and resent the indignities that are offered to you by Satan, as if done to himself. And you have great reason to bless God under all these spiritual afflictions if you are unable to still withhold the consent of your will, and still abhor and detest those suggestions from your very heart. Let these thoughts encourage and excite you to go on resisting the devil, being confident in the faith that he will flee from you. Number three, when you find on examination that it is difficult or impossible to decide where the temptation comes from, it is best to take the fault upon it ourselves. Sometimes experiences of this kind are so intricate that we cannot come to any certainty whether Satan or our own hearts have the chief hand in the present evil. Now I apprehend that in such cases we need not be too curious to know whether saying began first, or our own hearts, for whatever it is, or wherever it may come from first, it is our own if it suits our natural inclination, if it aligns with the temper of our own minds, and is received with any delight in our souls. Besides, this is a general rule which we may always take, namely, that whatever is difficult to be known, it is of little importance to decide it. We may be sure it is thus in the present case, because what makes it difficult to distinguish is a coincidence of our own hearts with the temptation. Perhaps some want to indulge a curious mind in solving this question, and so they may spend their time and thoughts in inquiring which is most guilty. Satan or themselves, whereas their thoughts and times would be better employed in humbling themselves for the share that their own hearts have in the iniquity, and in setting about to resist the temptation. Lastly, remember that neither temptation nor corruption can bar the door of hope, nor be a sufficient reason for any soul to sink into desperation.
I say this for the encouragement and direction of those who perpetually entertain gloomy thoughts concerning themselves, because they feel so much corruption working in them, or find themselves so much under the power of temptation. Many serious persons continually pour over themselves and complain under their burdens to such a degree that they prevent them from taking the comfort and embracing the hope which the gospel holds forth. Therefore, let this be a general rule with you, that whatever corruptions are seen and lamented, and whatever temptations are felt as a burden, however bad they are, they can be no reason for discouragement. Though you may be continually buffeted by Satan's temptations, or continually distressed by the rising of your own corruptions, remember, that the hope of the gospel is gloriously full and completely free, so free that the corruptions of your heart cannot destroy it, nor the temptations of Satan deprive you of a right to lay hold of it. No, indeed, the more violently you are tempted and the more you see yourself as corrupted, the stronger is the call upon you to fly to the Lord Jesus Christ for strength against both sin and Satan. For the Lord Jesus Christ is a ready succor to all those who are harried and perplexed, either by their internal or external enemies. These are the very persons that Christ has promised to save, for it is said in Psalm 72, verses 13 and 14, He will spare the poor and needy, and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their souls from deceit and violence, and their blood shall be precious in his sight. Believe, therefore, this gracious promise, and lay hold of it for yourself. And you may then be sure of this, that the God of peace will bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Romans 16, verse 20.